and draw your attention this morning back to the book of Genesis. God's holy word, we will be reading Genesis 2, verse 25 through 3, verse, chapter 3, verse 7. Genesis 2, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees, the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and, that they, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we might come before you today to worship you, to gather together as a body of believers and to call upon your name, Lord, that we might lift you up, that we might adore you this morning, that we might praise you for all these glorious gifts that you've given us. And Lord, uh, chief among those is the gift of our Savior, the incarnate Word of God, Lord, the one by whom all things were created the one by whom all things are sustained and in whom all things are held together. Lord, we ask that we would behold your glory this morning in, in your word. Lord, the, the word of God proves true. And we thank you for that. We thank you for giving it to us that we might know you, that we might know our need. Lord, that we might have a sure foundation for our faith. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Have you ever heard of such a thing as an origin story? An origin story. We've seen a rise to this, a rise in prevalence of this in the last several years, especially among the movie industry. Origin stories. They will, these movie makers will make a movie, and one particular character in that movie, or maybe a few particular characters in that movie, will have really caught the uh, watcher's attention, and they really connect for some reason with that character. And the audience who's watched this movie wants to know more about that character, about what he or she is. They want to know why this character became like they are. Uh, what is it that made them 
behave the way that they do or maybe what in the world it was that caused them to have so many problems in some cases in some of these characters. Well, these origin stories are a way to explain all of this to the audience that has watched the movies. They often have an element in these origin stories of catastrophe, of tragedy, or a hardship of some sort that makes them and molds them into what they have become. Good novels often have this type of thing as well. A character may have glimpses back in a novel or maybe in the overall arch of the story, uh, we have a glimpse of what altered the course of the character's life. Uh, many of these follow a, a particular style or theme that, appear, that appears within the work. Uh, one of the most prevalent among these themes in literature is the concept that they refer to in literature as the concept of original sin, taken from biblical things. Um, it's that moment in a character's life where his actions or the actions of those around this character have a, a dramatic effect upon that character's life. Maybe it's a loss of innocence or, or something of that sort. And it's an, it's an answer. It seeks to answer the why question regarding that particular character and why they have become what they are. We've talked about this why question before. Uh, and truly, this is the question that we are always act, asking, is it not? The why question. Uh, we, have, we have a patient here before us this morning. And in the coming weeks, we will be looking at this patient. The patient is mankind. And we see, we clearly observe that there is something tragic going on. Some terrible malady that has plagued our patient mankind. It does us no good to cover it up, to try and obscure it or to mask it. Uh, it's no solution for us to treat the symptom of this issue with no regard as to the why there is an issue. We must get to the answer of why. Masking, obscuring, covering, alleviating a symptom still leaves the disease intact. The malady still is present. So we must understand the why and we must get to the origin of the problem. Why is this happening to me? That's often the question that we ask, right? Why is this terrible thing happening to me? Why am I in pain? Why is there heartache? Why is there weariness? Why is there death? Why is there sorrow? Why is there lust? Why do I have a desire to have the things that belong to my neighbor? Why is there problems in marriage, in relationships? Why is there depression? Why? On and on and on, we can ask these why questions. And no one is immune from this. Not a single person of, of all of mankind is immune to this. And we want to know why. We must know why. This is the universal experience of mankind. Universal. There's a conflict everywhere we look. Is that not the case? Everywhere we look, there's conflict. 
and we want to know why there's conflict. There is war without. There's one nation warring against another, one person against another, man versus man, husband versus wife, parents versus children. There is conflict, but that's not all. There's also conflict within as well. That disappointment, stress, anxiety, hunger for purpose, depression. Once again, no one is immune from this. You put an end to that which is outward. You put an end to war, and there's still conflict that is raging internally. And at some point, that internal conflict is going to boil over to the point that it has conflict with someone outside. And it just starts this vicious cycle of conflict. You take a person who has everything, absolutely everything the world has to offer, and you still see this. Celebrities, drug abuse within celebrities, suicide within celebrities, athletes with fame and power and wealth, and all that the world has to offer still have problems with their spouses and their children, still have conflict. We seek the why. We want to know why. The world is striving for an answer. And every worldly answer to pick us up off this, this ground just ends in a bigger mess than where we first began. Why is that? Another why question. Why is that? Because the world wants to do it our way. My way. I don't remember which commentator it was, but it shocked me when one of the commentators said that he had a friend that was a funeral director, and the very mo the most prevalent song played at a funeral was Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way at a funeral. And then so he didn't believe him, so he went to another funeral director and asked him. Same response. I did it my way. There is a concept of the world that lies at the bottom of all of this, which is brought about by these evolutionary ideas that man descended from apes and the apes themselves descended from some sort of primordial blob, slime, by chance, and man has been climbing this evolutionary ladder ever since, reaching the apex of existence through evolution, getting better and better, higher and higher. Well, do you see that in life? Is that what you see? Is man climbing higher and higher? Are we advancing? We're doing it our way, according to our desires, according to that which we say, what man says, advancing our way to a better man, to a better society that is above all that primitive man dealt with. Is that what you see? In the text that we will get to in a few weeks, in Genesis 4, verses 3 through 5, we read, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And then we read in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Let me ask you, and I really want you to think about this. Has anything changed? This is 6,000 years ago. Are we advancing? The 6,000 years of history, as Horatius Bonner said, reveal to us that we are advancing? I just read yesterday about a brother and his siblings in Florida. 14-year-old, 15-year-old brother, 23-year-old sister who had a baby. And the two brothers were arguing about who was getting the better end of their presence. Who, the, who had the most money spent on them for their presence? And they were at their grandmother's house, and the 23-year-old sister turned to her brothers and told them to stop arguing. And the 14-year-old brother said, I'm going to shoot you and your baby that she was holding in her arms. And he went and he got a gun, and he came back in and he shot his 23-year-old sister and killed her. And went outside. And his 15-year-old brother then went and got another gun and went out and shot his 14-year-old brother. Are we advancing? Here in just a little bit, we're going to read that Noah got drunk and naked. Are we advancing? Not happening, is it? Has the world's answer to the why gotten us anywhere at all? Has the politician's quest for creating a perfect society moved us any closer to paradise? Has the health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel of the world brought about any semblance of health, wealth, and prosperity? No. Think about this throughout this next week when we come back again to this passage in Genesis. Think about that. The soul of man is crying out for an answer to the why. Where do we turn for the why? Well, first and foremost... Let us say that we are, not, we are not ascending the ladder of evolution and progressing. Man is not rising. Man has fallen and man cannot get himself up. Do you remember the old commercial? The button that you wear, I've fallen and I can't get up. This is the state of man. Man has fallen and man cannot raise himself up. Man was created by God, and it was good. Man was upright. Man was the crowning creature of all that was created and placed upon this earth, given dominion over it, and given the command to have dominion and subdue it, to rule over it and subdue the earth. Even having that revealed to us, we still have the why. Why? 
when we look at the world and we see the state of it and, and the state of mankind, we still must ask the question, why? But now we can turn and look at the true origin story. That's what we've been doing these last few weeks. We've been looking into the historical account of the origin and the origin of all that we see. And it's the true account, and it's the only one that answers the why. It is in the text of this book, the Bible, that we read the true account of our origin and the true account of how we are now in the state that we find ourselves. That's why we are calling this series that we're doing on Genesis, Faith's Foundations. We must have a true and a solid foundation for understanding, for diagnosing the problem, diagnosing the disease, the great problem of mankind. This word of God, the foundational message of God, revealed and recorded for us in Genesis 1 through 3, and then on through chapter 11, is the most practical message mankind can hear. It alone gives us an honest answer to all the whys that we have. And what's more, it gives us the answer to why all the world's answers end up in despair. Lloyd-Jones calls this book, The Holy Bible, God's Word, the textbook of the soul. The textbook of the soul. Depression, marriage problems, strife, lust, death, sorrow, pain, uncertainty, the list goes on and on. Well, this Word of God, this textbook of the soul, as Lloyd-Jones put it, tells you why. Not only does it tell you why, but it points you to the cure. It points to the source of the remedy in each and every case that we have a why question about. So here we are, having just come to the end of chapter 2, having seen our origin. Well, now we're about to begin chapter 3 and see the why. We are about to look at the fall, our tragic start to a long, sad story. This is something that we must understand. We must come to grasp with this. We must understand what happened at the fall so that we can build a solid foundation for our faith and for our lives. If we come to this portion of Scripture and we see that all along we've been building a foundation upon a false and worldly foundation of man's way and man's word, we must tear down that foundation. The foundation is vital to the building up of a structure. If it is built on a false foundation, it will not stand. We must knock down each and every block of it and crush it under the weight and the testimony that is given to us from our Creator God and build a solid foundation upon His Word. There are only two. There are only two foundations. There's one built on God's Word 
and one built on man's word. The word of our creator and our God or the word of the creature? There's only two. The creature's word may seem at times similar. They may appear so. And we will see that even this is by design of our enemy, who himself is nothing but a creature. It's his design to make it sound similar, but in reality, the creature's word is contradictory to the creator's word. One leads to life. The other leads to death. Isn't that the history that we have being recorded for us here? This is life versus death. Well, what foundation has already been laid as we have progressed through this book so far? Uh, it's truly a foundation of God's word. It's by the, power, the word of his power. God created and it was very good. He creates by his word. By his word he creates. He says, let there be, and there is. He makes all that we see, all the plants, all the animals, and he makes man. Forms the man of dust, Adam, brings life to him, breathes into this man of dust the breath of life, and he becomes a living being. And this particular being he created in his own image. And we saw last week that God, according to his love and according to his purpose, and according to his plan, created the perfect helper for Adam. And it must have been good. God declares that it's good. And Adam, the first words, as we said last week, recorded that a human being ever spoke, Adam rejoices. If you look back at verse 23 of Genesis 2, this at last, Adam said, is bone of my bone, bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. All of it done, all of it completed according to God's word. And it was good. Well, what happened then? We look around us and we don't see good in this world. What happened? Where does this origin of this sad story come from? And who does it come from? Well, is it not apparent from what we have already learned that it didn't come from God? As the source, God is not the source of this evil that befalls mankind. Everything that God created is good. 1 John 1.5 tells us, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I believe that this is exactly what we find to be in line with what we have seen so far regarding God and his goodness in creation. No darkness, just good. First thing that he created was what? Light. The end of this wonderful origin story is what we find in Genesis 2.25. And the man 
and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The man, this created man, one of the two genders of mankind, and his wife, the one given to him by God, presented to him by God as a gift, a perfect gift given to him by the Creator to be his, to be his perfect counterpart, his perfect companion, the other gender that is fit for him. They were both living and existing here in the garden of God together in harmony with each other, in harmony with all the rest of creation, and in harmony and communion with God. Who is their creator? And they were naked. Everything was exposed, able to be viewed. Everything was before the eyes of all creation and the creator without anything hidden or obscured. And they were not ashamed. They were not in a state of embarrassment. They were not attempting to hide. They were not bashful. They were, there was no sense of guilt no sense of remorse. It was good. It was very good. And they were not ashamed. There was nothing that was not good. They lived in perfection. Now this verse actually starts a section which starts here in Genesis 2.25 and ends in Genesis 3.7 and it makes up its own little section here culminating there in chapter 3, verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Something tragic happens here between these two verses, between verse 25 of chapter 2 and verse, three, verse 7 of chapter 3. Adam and Eve went from being naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed. Naked and hiding their nakedness, attempting to cover it up. This is a theme that runs through Scripture. Nakedness goes from something to not even hide in chapter 2 to a sign of shame and humiliation after chapter 3. Listen to some of these descriptions from Scripture regarding what nakedness after chapter 3 is. In Genesis 9, 21 through 27, he drank of the wine, that's Adam, or excuse me, that's Noah. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their, both on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. There was shame involved in Noah's naked state. In Ezekiel 16 verse 8, 
When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. There was a need to be covered from the exposure. Isaiah 47.3, your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Shame and ridicule come from being exposed and naked. Ezekiel 16, 36 through 37. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to, him, to them, Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Everything, the wickedness and sinful acts will be exposed, leading to shame and humiliation. In Deuteronomy 28, 48, Therefore you shall serve your enemy, enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness, in lacking everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Their nakedness will show their state of destitute, destitute nature. So something happens here in chapter 3 that changes the concept of nakedness from one of being ashamed, unashamed, to a state of being ashamed or to a state of humiliation. So once again, prior to what we read at the beginning of the message, Adam and Eve were in a state of innocence. They knew nothing of evil. They had only heard the word of God. There was no outside influence that existed upon Adam and Eve. There was no questioning of God's word that had been brought into their mind. And most assuredly, there was no reason for distrust that they had experienced. Look at all that had been given to them. The state in which all of this had been given to them and the position they held within that creation. Listen to how Kent Hughes describes this. He says, Here at the pinnacle in 2.25, we should note that 2.25 and 3.7 enclose a unit because both focus on the couple's nakedness, but in radical contrast. Whereas 2.25 pictures Adam and Eve at the pinnacle of in innocence and intimacy, 3.7 describes them in a pit of guilt and estrangement. This, this section describes the first couple's descent from innocence to guilt. He says it is real history, but as primal history, it describes what has happened countless times down through the ages. It is universal, and he says, and wise people will listen. Let me also interject here and state before we move into chapter 3, that what will follow will lead us to some of the greatest doctrines of the church here in chapter 3. 
this teaching from God's word that will answer the question that mankind has as to why. We're about to see the starting point for the doctrine of sin. These are just a few among the ones that we will see. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The fall. The doctrine of Satan, of judgment, of work, of prophecy, of death, of sickness, of sorrow, and of pain. It's all here in what we are going to start looking at from Genesis 3. As we start to dive into the epic unfolding drama that we call the fall of man. The devolving of man as opposed to the evolving of man. Well, Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We're not going to deal with the origin of our enemy other than to say that this one who came as a serpent is the devil himself, a being created by God. We will not deal with the time of his creation nor the fall of Satan. You can go back to our series of messages from Ephesians, in particular Ephesians 6, if you're interested in hearing that. What we will say and are certain of is that this serpent is indeed our enemy. It's Satan, the devil. He's our adversary. He's the accuser. He's the father of lies. He's the murderer, and he is the deceiver. I will point out a couple of scriptures to set out that this is a fact, that this is the devil himself. In Ezekiel 28, verse 12 through 17 Ezekiel is prophesying and he says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, God's word. Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, Topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And in Revelation 12, 9, we read, And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, which is called Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Well, Satan, we read here, was crafty. A word we've talked about before can also be translated as wise, discerning, subtle. And the enemy here comes not to Adam, not to the head, but to his helper, to his helpmate. This is often how our enemy still works. He seeks out one to gain advantage over another. 
Here, he first seeks out the weaker vessel. I don't use that in a derogatory way. It's the way God has made us as beings in two genders. One has traits that the other does not. And one completes the other by those strengths which have been given to them. It is scriptural to speak this way. It's not popular to speak this way. But I'm not concerned with what man or the world thinks or what is popular to fallen man. I'm concerned with what God says and what his word declares. We find in Peter's writing in 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And in Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere pure, and pure devotion to Christ. It was the weaker vessel that Satan approached. It was actually worse what Adam did. Adam wasn't deceived by the serpent. But he approached Eve. Satan made use of the weaker vessel to deceive and manipulate her into assisting in Adam's outright transgression of God's command. And what did that lead to? It led to death. Which is why Satan is referred to as being a murderer from the beginning. There are many who also believe that Satan came to Eve when she was alone. And this may be. Um, I don't uh, think we can know for certain that this is a fact. Uh, if you look at verse 6 of our text. It says at the last part of that, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now it could be that there was a time in between when Satan approached Eve, and when Adam and Eve were right there at the tree, and she took of the fruit and ate and gave it to her husband, and he ate. We can't know for certain. What we do know, and what I want to concentrate on, starting here and through next week or the next few weeks, is the method of attack which Satan used leading to this great fall, this act of rebellion against the authority and the word of the Creator God. What do we read in our text, Genesis 3.1? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... Right here is the start of the attack. This is the spearhead of the attack that Satan is making. Did God actually say? Indeed, has God said? Has God indeed said? Yea, hath God said? Did God actually say? Did God really say? Did God say? I use all these translations to show us that it's a, it's a very pointed attack. And what it is that is attacked 
is the very veracity, the truthfulness of God's word. God's word is brought into question by the serpent, by Satan. Satan does not come out and make his full purpose immediately known here. He doesn't just come right out and deny God's word. No, he, he makes a subtle suggestion to our mother Eve. He asks a sly, discerning question, a question made to foster doubt. Did God actually say? He did not deny God's word directly here, but by his question fostered the thought in Eve's mind that God's word is subject to man's interpretation. That God's word is subject to our understanding. That God's word is subject to our judgment. Did God actually say? Satan begins with insinuation before moving on. Do you see the ramification of this? Of this questioning like this? Of asking, did God actually say? Think about this and ponder this. Meditate on the ramifications or what flows out of this doubt that arises from this question. Did God actually say? Genesis 1-3, And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Genesis 1-6, And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Genesis 1-9, And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Genesis 1.11, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit, uh, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Genesis 1.14, And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let there be sign for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Genesis 1.20, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Genesis 1.24, And God said, let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.29, And God said, Behold, I, will, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And in chapter 2, Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a, him a helper fit for him. And in particular here, in our text from this morning, Genesis 2, 16 through 17, 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Satan's goal was to create (laughs) doubt in what God said. Do you see, my friends, what taking the word of the enemy over the word of God has led to? Death, sin, fallen nature passed down through all of Adam's descendants. Estrangement from God and estrangement from one another. Loneliness, despair, pain, war. Oh my, how man has fallen. Through this one question, an insinuation of doubt, which began this process by where Satan deceives Eve. When Eve and then Adam took the word of God and disregarded it for the word of Satan. Doubting in the truthfulness of God's word was planted in the mind of the creature who had no reason for doubting the truthfulness and the goodness, the holiness of God's word. No reason for the doubting the truthfulness of what God says. Do you see where this has led? What has come as a result of this doubt and the denial that follows leading to rebellion? against our maker. Do you understand that man must see the why here? Man must realize that death has come through this and the only solution is to now live by the word of God. Not doubt it, but live by it. The written word of God making known to us the incarnate word of God. What does the word tell us? From beginning to end, it tells us God says. God says. Please don't tire of hearing God says, do not doubt it as was the case of Eve. Rely upon what God says and cast away everything else. We have fallen, now what? Well, what does God say? We're in the state we're in. Can't go back and prevent Adam and Eve from falling. Now what? Well, what does God say? He didn't just stop it there. The revelation continues. 
of what God says. Genesis 3, 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what God said. Genesis 22, 15 through 18 he builds upon that. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And in speaking of this promised seed that we first heard of in Genesis 3.15, more than revealed to Abraham, then more through the prophecy of Isaiah, which begins in Isaiah 52.3, with, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. And he goes on in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold my servant. He's speaking of this one, this seed. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah 53, 3, speaking of this servant. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, Isaiah prophesies about this one. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what God has said, brothers and sisters. Where do we turn to? We turn to what God has said. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 9. And they made him 
They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, yet it is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. What did Adam and Eve incur and through them all of us incur as a result of their rebellion in the garden? They went from being naked and unashamed to being naked and ashamed of their guilt. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities who is this speaking of speaking of the incarnate word of God the thus says of Christ the seed God himself said in Matthew three sixteen and 17 Listen to what he says. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said. God's speaking here. He is saying something. God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And later, on the mount in Matthew 17 5 he was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him God incarnate the word of God has something to say What did he say? Come unto me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't doubt the word of God. Don't do what Eve did. Here in our text and allow Satan to cause a, a creeping doubt to come into the mind about what God has said. What else did God say? What else did God incarnate? The incarnate word of God say. John 19.30 When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He said, it is finished. The battle 
has been won. What God said to the serpent in Genesis 3, in his curse upon the serpent, has come to pass when Jesus said, it is finished. He crushed the head of the serpent. The word was accomplished. Every word of God proves true. It's pure. God's word is true. It is altogether very good. And it can be relied upon without doubt. So live. What did Christ say? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Hold fast to it. Live by it. Cling to it. Reject the word of the world. The word of a liar. The word of a deceiver. He's the father of lies. And he's the same one who came and seduced our mother Eve. Who would cause us, who wishes to cause us to doubt the word of God. You look to God's word in God's word alone. Alone. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it answers the greatest question that we have. We thank you that your word declares how man shall be right with God. In light of man rebelling against your word. Help us to cherish it. Help us to hold fast to it, to cling to it. Lord, that we might not drift away from it. Be with us this week, Lord. May we meditate on your word, on what happened here in Genesis 3 as we go forward. We might see what tragedy befalls those who would rebel against what you have said and what you have purposed. Give us strength, give us discernment, give us wisdom that we might defend against our enemy's attacks. against what you've declared and what you've commanded and what you've revealed through your word. It's the name of Christ we pray. Amen.